welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. Did you know that there are over 1,300 endangered species in the United States? This includes polar bears, northern spotted owls, red wolves, Florida panthers, and even monarch butterflies. We've been given a mandate to take care of the earth and all living creatures on it. So when it comes to endangered species, we need to learn how we can best make sure that these vulnerable animals are protected. This week, Jonathan Wood joins Act in Line to show how market-based approaches are the best way to tackle the issue. Jonathan is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, where he litigates environmental, property rights, and constitutional cases. Don't forget that for every episode of the podcast, I put together a list of articles and resources for you in our show notes, and you can read those at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Welcome to Act in Line. I'm your host, John Caritas. Today we're welcoming to the podcast Jonathan Wood. He's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation and adjunct fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center. And he's also a member of the Executive Committee for the Federalist Society's Environmental Law and Property Rights Practice Group. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. You've just published a new article at the Property Environment Research Center titled The New Endangered Species Act Rules Explained, and we'll link this article to the show notes for the podcast. So today we want to talk about the Endangered Species Act and what actually happened here in the late summer. The Trump administration issued some uh, tweaks, amendments, new rules for the act, And there was a lot of blowback from environmentalists and the media about this. I saw a comment from one Christian environmentalist who called the new rules, quote, reckless and predicted that, another quote, weakening the act would mean ignoring science and success and instead allowing for environmental degradation and extinction of wildlife around the country. Lots of emotion around this act. So help us understand First of all, what happened this summer? Why did the Trump administration move uh, with these new rules? You're absolutely right. The Endangered Species Act, perhaps more than any other federal law, uh, attracts a degree of emotion that I think ultimately undermines our ability to talk productively about what we're trying to do with the act and how well uh, it's doing. I mean, some of my favorite headlines from when the, the new rules came out was, Washington Post ran an editorial that the title was, Why Does Trump Hate Polar Bears and Children? They even um, had a, a fact-check article that reviewed a fact which is indisput- indisputably true, but nonetheless gave it several Pinocchios. Um, it just if something feels wrong, it, it must be wrong no matter how true it is. So how do, we, how do we get to the point where the president hates children because of this move? I think it's more, it's just rhetoric. So if you go back, so I've been doing this work for about 10 years, working on endangered species issues. Um, and I know some people who've been doing it much longer. And it seems that no matter what uh, reforms or changes are proposed or enacted, 
you get this sort of rhetoric. So during the Obama administration, there was a change to update the paperwork required to ask an agency to list a species as endangered or threatened. And the usual groups that, that engage in this sort of rhetoric came out and said, oh, you're gutting the Endangered Species Act. The sky will fall. It really doesn't matter how significant or minor the, the changes are. Anything whatsoever will be attacked as a fundamental attack on, on the Endangered Species Act. And it's never true, of course. These reforms get enacted, and the world keeps, keeps chugging along. But there's just this incentive because – you know, you're more likely quoted in the, the newspaper or the TV yeah. if your statements are over the top. Right. Over the top. And uh, it's somehow this act is sacrosanct that any kind of change or amendment, uh, you see all this rhetoric issuing forth right away. I was going to say, which is particularly infor- unfortunate since the act, although, you know, the act is a work of p- people. Uh, like anything, it has some good qualities and some bad qualities, and we should be having a mature discussion about, you know, can we do better to accomplish our goals of preventing species extinction and promoting species recovery? But we just can't have that conversation. Yeah. Now, to be clear, the Trump administration did not amend or repeal the Endangered Species Act. It clarified some rules. Why did it feel? Why did it feel it was necessary to do that? That's exactly right. They issued three regulations over the summer. The overriding theme of the regulations was that the old rules and the way the the Endangered Species Act had been implemented was too bureaucratic and gave too little consideration for the incentives of landowners and others who are interacting with the Endangered Species Act. So under the existing regulations, the, the assumption was whenever a species is listed, we're going to regulate people as much as we possibly can, and that's the way we're going to protect species. And the, the rules recognize that that's not really the best way to go about it, that often being more reasonable and, and working with the people that are affected by endangered species and whose actions affect endangered species is more likely to build the goodwill necessary to encourage the activities necessary to recover species. So most species lack sufficient habitat to recover. If we're going to recover species like the greater sage grouse or the dusky gopher frog, private landowners are going to have to restore habitat on their land, and you're more likely to get that if you work with landowners, if you treat them as partners, rather than if you impose really costly regulation on them and threaten them with jail time. And when you do that with property owners, you want to respect property rights and work out a solution that preserves their property rights, preserves their ability to run their farms, ranches, their their private property, and still uh, help these species. And a lot of these property owners are sympathetic to the cause of endangered species, are they not? Oh, that's exactly right. When surveys of landowners are done routinely, and the Endangered Species Act always uh, scores very poorly. Landowners routinely say they don't trust the act, they don't trust the people administering the act. But if you ask them what they think about the species themselves or environmental values, they overwhelmingly view themselves as stewards of their land. So they'll say that they, you know, 95% will say, we think it's really important to protect and recover endangered species. But then the Endangered Species Act itself will get, say, 30%. A different issue. Um, so there's, right. there's yeah. a huge disconnect there. Yeah. Yeah. And overall, public opinion is firmly behind the Endangered Species Act. I mean, it's hard to find a 
person who, uh, well, maybe with the exception of President Trump, doesn't like polar bears or think wolves should be protected and, and birds and plants and that sort of thing, right? I'm, and I'm being a little bit facetious about the president, but that was the charge against him. But public opinion is really in favor of protecting endangered species, is it not? Absolutely. Surveys of uh, people on the ESA happen about every year and routinely. It's 95% plus support the Endangered Species Act, and that's regardless of whether you're surveying Democrats, Republicans, people in the East, people in the West. Um, unfortunately, that that support is probably rather thin. There have also been surveys about how much people actually know about the Endangered Species Act, and they fare very poorly. I think the average person thinks they're – doing this from memory, but the average person thinks there are about a dozen endangered species when there are actually 1,600 on the list. Um, they don't know what those species are. But I, what I think the overall takeaway is that people care a lot about the underlying goals. They want to see species saved from extinction and to recover, and that's why you get these huge uh, outpourings of support for the endangered species. Yeah, and this this conservation ethic, this this desire to protect these um, beautiful animals is cuts across the whole political spe- spectrum. It's not owned by one side or the other. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. As I said, the surveys, Democrats, Republicans, it, it really doesn't matter. Everyone seems to support the idea of conservation and protecting species. Um, and I think that's you know shown by all sorts of issues. People overwhelmingly love the national parks and, and other conservation programs that we interact with personally, that we have memories of, you know, I saw a grizzly bear and I will remember that for the rest of my life. And most Americans have those sorts of memories. Now, let's talk about economic impacts. Uh, In your article at PERC, you mentioned that the costs can run into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, But when uh, determinations are made about whether to protect a species or not, or not, it's about the animal or the plant itself. It's not necessarily about what this would cost. Do I have that right? That's that's right. So the, there are several stages that happen under the Endangered Species Act, but the main one of is this species in or is in is this species endangered or threatened is a scientific question that the agencies absolutely cannot consider cost. So if listing some insect would cost thousands or trillions of dollars of economic loss, it doesn't matter. The, the the agencies have to list that species. There are other decisions where costs can be considered on how you regulate species, but the fundamental question of is the species endangered or threatened with extinction is a scientific one that costs absolutely can't be considered for. Now, is, is there any likelihood that that calculation will change, or is that um, how things will uh, be handled going forward. I don't think that'll change. And when you think about it, it doesn't make sense to change it. Whether a species is endangered or threatened really is a scientific question. The policy questions that should consider costs are what do you do once you list a species as endangered or threatened? In the past, we've ignored that question. Under the Endangered Species Act, there are some regulatory restrictions that automatically apply, others that are discretionary. But the approach federal agencies have taken is just automatically regulate absolutely everything. I think that's a mistake. That's where you should be thinking more carefully of what are the benefits of doing this? What are the costs? And does this actually make sense? Uh, The new rules will encourage that kind of analysis and I think lead to better outcomes. 
Many listeners will remember the northern spotted owl controversy um, after the bird was protected in the 1990s. There was a huge clash with loggers, the logging industry, and uh, that industry um, really suffered because of that determination. There was a lot of sentiment in the business sector that this law was just destructive. Are we still seeing those kinds of conflicts with this law? And are, are, are people able to resolve these conflicts any better than they uh, were able to back in the 90s? Well, we absolutely do see those sorts of conflicts. There are incentives to try to list species that will obstruct as much economic and human activity as possible, and that, that has continued throughout the Act's history. Uh, there are certainly there are ways that people and agencies, if the agencies are willing to take this seriously, to work out these conflicts so they don't cause as much harm, but those tend to be the rare exceptions. So in recent years, we've seen the recurrence of the spotted owl controversy in California with the Delta smelt, a minnow that caused water restrictions to the Central Valley, the breadbasket of food production in the United States. They caused significant uh, disruption you know, millions of acres had to be left fallow. Many people lost their jobs. Communities saw a huge economic disruption. We almost saw it with the greater sage grass and might soon see it with the greater sage grass. That species is listed, which affects rural areas in 11 states. Um, that said, there have been good outcomes where that kind of conflict was avoided because there were incentives for agencies, conservation groups, and business to come to the table and work something out that was actually beneficial for everyone. And the irony is the species does better in those situations than it does in the northern spotted owl or the delta smelt case. Both of those species are still headed to extinction despite the costs that have been imposed. Why is that? Why, after all the sacrifice, after all the conflict, the court battles, why is it that these particular species have not come back? I think it's primarily a question of incentives. Most species that are endangered or threatened are in a situation where leaving them alone will not recover them. They need active efforts to restore habitat or to manage habitat in a way that will boost their numbers. And the conflicts have just resulted in areas being sort of locked off from everyone and said, okay, leave that alone. We're going to let the species recover. And it doesn't happen. So in the case of the northern spotted owl, another owl came into the habitat and has been competing against it and over time winning. Nature intervened, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It, you know, to some extent, that is a, a natural phenomenon um, that the Endangered Species Act is not up to, to solving. If we want to save that species from that competition, it's going to require something different. In the Delta smelt, the problem is water quality. Uh, the, the area that it occupies of the San Francisco Bay Delta has been becoming more saline over time, and that's not going to be solved unless there are incentives for people to do things to, to address it, and the ESA doesn't do that. It says, leave things alone, stay away. Well, you talk about incentives. Uh, I'd like uh, to get back to your work at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and, and you describe your work broadly as a libertarian environmentalism. So we talk about incentives. Maybe this is a good time for you to tell us a little bit about what libertarian environmentalism looks like. How would you define it? What are the key principles behind it? Well, I think the basic principle is that both people and the environment are best off when people are free and prosperous. 
the areas where you've seen the most environmental degradation are where those conditions aren't satisfied. So communist states are terrible for the environment. Uh, authoritarian states are terrible for the environment. Yeah, infamous destruction and in, in environmental quality under communism. Still suffering from the effects. Absolutely. Yeah. But in places like the United States where people are basically free and are prospering, you see the opposite. The environment today is better than it was 100 years ago. There's more forests. Species are better protected. Water quality is improving. So is air quality. And the reason for that is prosperous people care about those environmental uh, conditions and have the means and the incentive and power to do something about it in ways that you wouldn't have anywhere else. 5,000 years ago, our environmental concern was pretty much limited to, is there a tiger behind that tree? But today, you know, we have the means and the time to think about what's the world going to look like for our grandchildren 200 years from now? And that's due to the fact that we're prosperous and free and, and have the ability to actually do that sort of thinking and act on that sort of thinking. Now, within this framework, uh, we have classic problems of um, tragedy of the commons, and there have been various problems involving the, these commons that property rights have solved. Give us an example of how property rights can really help people come together to work on these tragedy of the commons environmental issues. Sure. So I'll give you an example from what actually got me involved in this work. Uh, I went to grad school at the London School of Economics, and my um, master's thesis was on environmental issues, and particularly endangered species issues in southern Africa. Uh, Namibia declared its independence and won its independence from South Africa in the early 90s. But after the end of the war, it was utterly crippled. It didn't have any resources. It didn't have the infrastructure to manage the country. And it had extremely valuable resources, including endangered species. Some of the largest populations of white rhino were there, as well as countless other species that people care a lot about and that the nation knew it had to manage responsibly. Otherwise, it'd have, it would have a significant poaching problem. Well, since it didn't have the resources to hire a bunch of police officers to go out and, and oversee this, this resource, it decided the only thing it could do would be to give the animals as property to the local communities, to local tribes, and ask them to manage it. So they had a stake then. They had a stake in the, in the, in the preservation of the species, these magnificent animals. Exactly. And you could see the change overnight. The people who used to be poachers became essentially game wardens working for the tribes and the local communities because now it was an asset for the local community. Previously, these were only liabilities. These animals would destroy your hut, eat your, your, the food you were growing in your farm, or, or otherwise harm your activities. But now you could profit from them because they were yours. You could um, sell the rights to hunt them. You could attract tourists who would bring revenue into your community. And it fundamentally changed the incentives for the local people who actually live with species to care and maximize them. And across the board, these species have increased since the 90s, and in most other African countries where these programs don't exist, the animals continue to decline. Are there tragedy of the commons problems, and I'm thinking of climate right now, which you might even conclude there isn't a solution to it because they're so complex, so many different players involved, so much, so much um, 
it's a contested issue to a great degree. Are there pro- problems like that that really are, are – are you, you have to sit back and say, I don't know if there's a solution here. It's certainly a hard way. I mean, you know, it's not surprising that after decades of debate, we don't seem to be all that much closer to solving uh, climate change, which I think is an important thing to keep that debate going. It's going to have significant impacts on individual rights and property rights. People are, are going to be harmed, including a lot of people in the third world, where the effects are going to be pre- pretty severe. Um, and you're right. I, it's difficult to imagine dividing up the atmosphere into private property and, and solving it that way. So that might be a situation where it requires collective action and regulation. But even in that situation, we're far better off if we use market-based approaches that create the right incentives and look kind of like property rights, even if they're not traditional property rights. When we've solved this problem or dealt this problem in the fishing context, where you have a similar resource that's really difficult to to section off or fence off uh, because the fish move all over the giant ocean. And the solution we've come up with that has been working is we create rights to the entire fishery and then divide it up amongst the fishermen. And that way, they have incentives to steward that resource and grow it because their share gets bigger as the fish population gets bigger and it decreases or goes away if they allow the fish uh, to go away. Now, um, I'm thinking about the endangered species, and it's not always uh, state action or federal law that helps the situation along. It can be, of course, but Talk to us a little bit about groups like, say, Ducks Unlimited and other private organizations. A lot of them are um, animated by hunters and fishermen who want to preserve habitat and species. How important is the role of these private groups working collaboratively with uh, state game agencies very often? How important are they to preserving and helping species flourish? Oh, they are absolutely vital. Only about 39 species have recovered under the Endangered Species Act since 1973, and those are the species that get, yes, at, I mean, it, it's shocking to think about that on a list of 1,600 species. So it's less than 2% have achieved recovery in almost 50 years, and what makes those species different is either they have weird threats that were solved very early on, or today they're benefiting from proactive, collaborative efforts from the groups you mentioned, people who are willing to put their own money into restoring a habitat or doing other things that will promote the expansion of a species to the point that it no longer needs uh, regulatory protection. And there are countless examples of that uh, where it works. And it's amazing to see the effects that has on the individual landowner who, frankly, are the people these species depend on. Um, when they're treated, approached as a partner, someone who uh, an environmental group wants to work with in pursuit of a common goal of making sure the land's productive but also uh, helping the species, they're happy to do it. But when they're approached as the villain of, you know, your activities are harming the species, you right. have to stop. That's not a good opener. Shut things down. Yeah, not Absolutely. a good opener for them, yeah. POF litigated a case to the Supreme Court last year that I think perfectly demonstrates this. A guy had 1,500 acres of land that was listed as critical habitat for the dusky gopher frog, even though that frog didn't live there and couldn't live there unless the land was substantially modified. The designation cost him an estimated 
$33 million, according to the federal agency. That was their estimate. And the theory, I guess, was, well, we're going to impose this regulation on him. He's going to lose this, these tens of millions of dollars, and he'll be so grateful to us for having done it that he'll then put in additional resources to creating the habitat we need. And, of course, that didn't happen. Instead, it bred conflict and litigation and ultimately went all the way to the Supreme Court. But imagine there could have been a very different outcome if instead Nature Conservancy or the federal agency had gone to him and said, this area is really important to the species. We'd like to buy it or pay for it or help work with you to, to preserve part of it as habitat for the species. What would it take to do that? You know, that's not, that's not going to lead to conflict. That's not going to lead to years of litigation. And you see lots of property owners putting the, uh, all or part of their property into, into, for example, a conservation easement to do just that. Yeah, absolutely. And conservation easements have been growing in recent years so that tens of millions of acres are currently protected through this voluntary contractual approach. Tell us a little bit about the work of Pacific Legal Foundation. What do you folks do? Well, PLF is the nation's oldest nonprofit law firm dedicated to defending property rights and individual rights. We've been around since 1973, started in California, but have slowly spread to cover issues across the country. Um, and our overriding goal is to protect individual liberty from overreaching government, um, primarily in the, the property rights space. We've won 12 Supreme Court cases covering a variety of uh, property environmental issues, as well as some free speech uh, issues. But you know, the overriding goal is liberty, and we're willing to fight for it on whatever whatever issues uh, we can to best advance it. Let's wrap up our conversation about the Endangered Species Act. You actually are are very positive about the act, and your article concludes, and I'm quoting from the article now, that. The Endangered Species Act is a popular and important law, so it's no surprise that changes to its implementation evoke strong feelings and rhetoric. Ultimately, details matter more than rhetoric. If we're serious about protecting endangered species, it is imperative that we find ways to preserve what the statute does well, prevent extinctions, while improving it as a tool to recover species. Sounds pretty reasonable to me. So overall, you think this is a good law. I think it's certainly well-intentioned. I think we can do better uh, in advancing its goals. It's certainly admirable that it's been able to achieve an impressive record at preventing extinction, and we don't want to sacrifice at that. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why you get the rhetoric you've heard about any changes to the Endangered Species Act, fear that we're going to start seeing species go extinct. We've got to prevent that. But there's a lot more we could be doing to better promote species and promote their recovery. As I said earlier, only 2% of listed species have recovered in almost 50 years. And the reason for that is incentives. The basic regulatory approach under the law is to punish property owners for accommodating species or protecting habitat. And that's fundamentally wrong. If we want to recover species, it's vital that we create incentives that reward landowners for allowing species onto their property for improving habitat. Um, but I'm optimistic that we can get there. I think over time you've seen a shift uh, in the environmental community of recognition that, okay, 
it's gone on long enough. If we want to recover species, something has to change. And so you see more groups shifting in the direction of the Nature Conservancy and Ducks Unlimited and some of the other groups we've been talking about who are interested in finding solutions that respect the interests and rights of property owners, but also provide for species. And I think that trend will continue. Well, good. It's good for everyone involved, including these uh, magnificent species that all of us want to preserve. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on Act Online today. Thank you for having me. Hey, this is John Caritas, executive producer of Act Online. With this episode, I'm leaving the podcast team to return to full-time writing, editing, and journalism. We've worked hard in recent years to make this an informative and even entertaining podcast. Over the last couple of years or so, it's been a process of continuous and proven experimentation designed to bring you timely and relevant reports and conversations. I want to thank, first of all, our growing listening audience for giving us the better part of an hour, week in and week out, when they could have chosen literally a million other podcasts to listen to. Our guests have been generous with their insights and their time. I can't tell you what a kick it has been to interview these great guests or be involved in producing their episodes. One thing I'm sure about is that Caroline Roberts, host and producer, and the entire podcast team will continue to make this a better podcast, more useful and informative week in and week out for you. So thank you. And rather than say goodbye, I'm just going to say see you later. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our podcast team loves putting this show together for you every week. And it's so encouraging to hear back from our listeners. Feedback is super important to me because it lets me know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most, and also how I can improve this show to make sure you're getting the most out of it. You can reach our team at actinline at actin.org, or you can call our office at 616-454-3080. And if you like our show, you know what to do. Leave us those ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe. Act in Line is on YouTube, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.